Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Hack. Uh, jumping straight out of sharpshooters and well into the mainstream, uh, this is Marcus calling uh, without any Alex or Alina. Kind of been let off the leash uh, with three great gents tonight. Um, all of whom you've heard before, some as a regular. Coming first, we've got Andy Dorman from Down the Pub. How are you doing, Andy? Uh, I do other things too. Thank <laughs> 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 you, Down the Pub. There's an Irishman in our pub, and he actually knows about other things. How's it going? You're good. Yeah, um, actually, you're here talking about your mainstream area rather than just comedy. Uh, you actually are a kind of 1700s British military researcher, PhD, and supervisor. That's your main area, isn't it, really? Uh, yeah, let's let's not talk too much about the British element, lest I lose my passport. But yes, no, it's the, <laughs> the British Army in Ireland. Aha. Aha. <laughs> Keep your passport, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then linking in, um, only been on one podcast with us so fast, but I think probably going to be coming back for a few more. Uh, we've got Robbie McNiven, um, not only a published science fiction author, which Dorman and I have got a few books, but also um, done quite a few on the American uh, Revolution. Isn't that right, Robbie? How are you doing? Hi, guys. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Really laying on the whole geek label thick there, but... Uh... Yeah, I write both uh, made-up stuff and uh, non-fiction, so I don't know, I just, you know, try and get paid in this day and age, you know, I do whatever. Always a good plan to get paid. written, I'll I'll do my best. (laughs) Yeah, you're in safe hands with the uh, the geek labels here between us, definitely. And then, kind of the master of all areas, you've heard him come on uh, here and talk about African kings, Hawaiian kings... Uh, recent conflicts and soon to be musketeers and everything too. It's a good friend of mine, Josh Provan. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm looking forward to getting into the, the 18th century for a change. Into the 18th century. So yes, that's what we're doing tonight. We're going to talk about uh, the British Army kind of emerging as a formed unit uh, into the uh, Kingdom of Great Britain. So the 1700s. Uh, this is when uh, it is just Great Britain, and uh, we are talking the end of the Stuarts and the beginning of the ha- Kingdom of Hanover, uh, the beginning of the Georges. Uh, and this is a whole new era, well before my main uh, stream. Napoleon's not even a glint in the milkman's eye yet, and uh, well, same as Wellington, born the same year, uh, so he's not there to counteract the whole thing. Uh, and what we've got is a completely different era. We are coming out of the turbulent times of the English Civil War and the restoration of the 1600s. And that's where we kind of saw the transformation from a king's army and different units being formed ad hoc to a standing army. Uh, a British army, the new model army, uh, kind of, well, I guess an English army, um, before anyone jumps on me, uh, as it was. And uh, they're transforming slowly into a professional fighting body. Uh, Regiments then were mostly named after their colonel of the time. Uh, So you would have 
the Howard's Regiment, for example, and they'd be named after each colonel as it changes. Uh, they don't have the famous numbering system, uh, which came in later, and that links into where I kind of study in the Napoleonic era, uh, where you would have the Gloucestershire Regiment, and they would have a number and their regiment. So you have like the 28 Gloucesters and then their number. And actually slowly the, the names kind of start to become more uh, prominent and you'd know them then as the Durhams later on. But the numbers are there. And this is, this is before that. And the kind of the first conflict we've got is under Churchill, but not Second World War Churchill. Uh, we are talking the soon-to-be uh, Marlborough. Uh, Josh, do you want to give us a bit of a summary of Marlborough? I think you might know quite a bit about him. Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you, Al. I'll be happy to try anyway. And uh, of course, everybody will let me know in the comments if I missed that. So, um, John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, was one of the most preeminent soldiers of his age. Um, for many people in the 18th century, he remains the British soldier to look back on. People like, in fact, it would be, it's very difficult to find another general in, from Britain who, who commanded the ty this type of uh, respect, not only in Britain and in the British Army, but in Europe as well, uh, until Wellington, really. And Wellington himself said that he could conceive of no greater thing than Marlborough at the head of an English army once. Uh, now, uh, John Churchill was uh, was an interesting chap in himself. He he came from an old uh, royalist family, which uh, stayed loyal despite losing the in the Civil War. But that turned out well during the Restoration, um, and they were restored to favour. Uh, he got his start, however, because uh, his sister was uh, the mistress of the Duke of York, and also he himself took up with one of Charles II's mistresses, and uh, this was one of the various ways a, a soldier, an officer, and a gentleman in, in those days could, could get ahead, and he ended up in the guards. Um, although uh, after uh, he may have, although he may have actually been sent to the Tangier garrison uh, to get him out of the way for a while, but there's actually no firm confirmation that he ever served there. Uh, he his the War of the Aust uh, Spanish Succession, I'm sorry, uh, was his proving ground. It was the moment where he stepped onto um, an international stage and became uh, renowned as a great soldier. Uh, this is coincidentally also a time when the British Army begins to be seen as something of a respected fighting force, uh, and the deployment of troops on the continent in uh, what was known as the Confederation or the Grand Alliance of the time against Louis XIV's uh, France and his allies was uh, the largest deployment of, of British troops to the continent. Uh, possibly in, in ever, actually, up to that point. Um, and Marlborough, uh, now due to another connection of uh, favour, because his wife was very, very close to Queen Anne, got the job of uh, commander of the, the British forces and the principal army in 1704, which was tasked to, um, to bring 
to to uh, to deal a deal a crippling blow to Louis XIV's army, and they did this uh, by 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 listening to Marlborough, and Marlborough had this this crazy idea that he could march an army from the Low Countries to the Danube and knock Bavaria out of the war, uh, and at the same time stop the French and Bavarians from attacking uh, Vienna and knocking the Austrians out of the war. Uh, this was an incredible feat of um, logistics and it was handled expertly by Marlborough. He, this is an immense amount of uh, miles to cover. Uh, it's seen as one of his masterpieces and, and it's really weird because in a way he, it was his first testing ground because he'd only commanded in the field in a, in a sort of a in a sort of a secondary capacity prior to this where he had been uh, sort of uh, effective commander at the Battle of Sedgemoor during the Monmouth Rebellion. Uh, I was just going to say that is something that Marlborough is known as uh, as mm -hmm. being a kind of a mar master of logistics and yeah. uh, manoeuvre. Uh, but just help everyone picture it. I um, don't know if the other gents want to jump in. The regiments, the army. Are we mm -hmm. talking red coats? Are we talking ten companies? Uh, Robbie, I'm uh, pretty sure we're not talking any light infantry here. <laughs> What's the discipline like? How, how, paint, paint me a picture, guys, of what the army, how the army looks different to Sharp, Waterloo, God, even the Patriot. How's the army different <laughs> at the early 1700s to uh, how we kind of know it from many films? They've got much bigger cuffs. Uh, <laughs> the, the uniforms, uniforms are, lots of legs, bigger hats. They, they're just longer, uh, more ungainly, and there's yeah. also a, a more variety. There's, a, there's a, not a pattern per se, but I suppose each colonel is given uh, the liberty to, uh, to equip their men how they see fit. Oh, but at the same time, they're still expected to be, you know, red coats, mm. facings. Mm. Uh, but you'll have a fair bit of uh, individual difference between the different units, so be that buttonholes or button facings or uh, hat trim or what have you. So there's, there's a bit of variety. Yeah, it's quite a colourful force, but mainly red. Mostly red. I, I believe lots of lace and bigger hats. I think they had the same musket, but they were just longer. Is that right? I mean, I think the first... So, like, the, the musket during this period is um, first the long land pattern, then the short land pattern, and then the India pattern is the Napoleonic one. I think the first long land is 1722... Could be wrong about that. Um, so I don't really know what system they had in place. I mean, I'm sure they were all sort of manufactured to spec, but I don't know what they would have called the particular sort of type. But yeah, they were long. They were long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seven inches barrel, maybe? Maybe she could have been a short. Quite a bit, quite a bit longer. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if that had a little bit of effect. Probably longer to reload slightly, more ungainly, but firing a musket, my analogy is always chuck a tennis ball down a drain pipe and it roughly goes forwards, but it could go left a bit, could go right, could go up, go down. Hence the, I'm presuming we're, we're on to the big volley fire, everyone being very strict. Uh, well, so like a picture of, let, let's, let's bring you uh, a picture of a, of, of a regiment in, in Marlborough's time. So you have 10 companies and at one point, there might have, I think there might have been two grenadier companies, but commonly you would have one. Uh, that stood on the right of the line. They wore funny tall hats that looked like pope hats, 
uh, richly embroidered with the, not the king's crest necessarily, but uh, possibly even the colonel's crest. Um, at this time, the colours that stood in the centre of the regiment, there were three of them, the colonel's colour, the monarch's colour, and um, the, uh, the national colour. Therefore, you would have a St. Andrew's cross if you were a Scottish regiment, a George cross if you were an English regiment, the Union flag, which represents the monarch, and the colonel's colour, which is the regimental facing colour, and the, the colonel's crest in the centre. The um, colonels, like Andy just was pointing out there, pretty much dictated the cut and uh, style of the uniform, which at this point was actually quite simple, um, but in a way more elaborate than what you get later on. Um, very big cuffs. Um, Norman's <laughs> yeah, rightly pointing out, actually, even on the Union flag, obviously it's a personal Union Island, we are yeah. not getting a lot of Irish representation at this point. With, so exactly. Were there exactly. Irish regiments? You can face this early on, Dorman. So the regiments who were recruited in Ireland, were they fighting Wrong. under... Yeah, I feel bad for cutting across uh, Josh's excellent uh, rundown of the regiment there. No, um, yeah, so it, it's technically illegal to recruit Irishmen into the British Army at this stage. Um, reason being, uh, you need the Irish Protestants here to keep the Catholics in line, and for God's sake, don't teach the Catholics how to shoot straight. Um, <laughs> so, because of that, any Irish recruiting that does take place is pretty clandestine. Uh, you've got cases of Irishmen being moved to Scotland and then being recruited in Scotland as Scotsmen, uh, that kind of thing. But you don't have the same that kind of homogenous Irishness until later on in the century, where things get more desperate. But in the early period, as Josh mentioned, most of the veteran Irish soldiers are wearing red, but they're shooting at the red coats. They're in the service of France. Um, there's, I think, six, uh, well, by uh, 745, there's six, but at, uh, I presume we're going to come to Blenheim. There's only three regiments um, in French service. I have this vision where they try to, like, make a film about Blenheim, but it's Patriot-level accuracy, and you have Irish <laughs> regiments with Irish travellers. Yeah, that, green. green. That's, the level it would be at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's how that is. Exactly. Yeah, there, there is, and I'm criminally um, going to not remember the exact name of it, there is an Irish regiment in the British Army, and uh, they have, as a cipher, on their, on their crest, a harp. And it could be the Royal Irish, or what became the Royal Irish, and there's a famous moment during the War of the Spanish Succession where they come up against the French Irish, and there is a, um, there's actually a famous account by one of their officers which talks about, this, which talks about the types of volley fire that um, the both sides used, where the, the French and Irish service used the rank-by-rank rank volley by battalion, and the British, the Irish and British service use um, by platoon, which of course we can we can try and explain, but it's very complicated to explain platoon <laughs> firing system without diagrams. Um, but the regiments pretty much looked as as I said, uh, big baggy coats, big sleeves, simple hats. Um, not actually a lot of lace at this period, um, uh, though the dragoons look rather splendid. Uh, and officers, however, are very splendidly attired because the officers are not required to dress like their men. In fact, it's 
in, it's actually encouraged that they dress differently. Uh, so you can tell who the officers are. Discipline's very tough. Uh, in Protestant armies, it tended to be rigorously tough. So you would get, you, if, you, if you blasphemed, you could be flogged or put on the wooden horse with weights tied around your uh, ankles. Uh, if you were found sneaking women into the camp, that's the same. Uh, obviously, death for various uh, sundry uh, offences in, in the face of the enemy. And, uh, and a, a very curious one called the whirly gig, which is essentially a large birdcage. You, you lock the offender in it and you spin it until they lose control of their bowels. Uh, and uh, well, it's it's highly it's maybe not as bad as maybe not as scarring as the lash, but I think it will leave an impression. This is like uh, a teacup's ride gone on acid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, um, the like we were saying before, they're all they're all armed with a type of musket. I believe it's a type of long um, pattern musket, which is about 42, 46 inches long, 68 caliber. Uh, shot uh, or bore, sorry, and the new, and he stressed this new triangular section socket bayonet, which was introduced supposedly after General Hugh McKay uh, had troubles with it fighting the Jacobites in the in the in Dundee's rebellion. And that's the um, itself. So this is a bayonet that goes into the barrel rather than locking around the outside. So once it goes in. You've got to make the decision. You can no longer load. Well, it. it's become a big pike, isn't it? Yes, that is. That was McKay's problem. That was the plug bayonet, and the stuff that Marlborough's chaps have now uh, is the socket, which is what we all know as a, a true bayonet, which which uh, slots uh, over the barrel. Uh, so they're uh, light bulbs from exactly, and they're all attired the with the best light bulb. <laughs> the easy light bulb, <laughs> the, the 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 every man's friend light bulb. Uh, yeah. The, so apart from that, um, you have a big sack that you wear over your back that you put all your stuff in. It looks kind of like a half half of a looks like a deflated balloon, really. Um, and a big old cartridge box, uh, sword or hanger, uh, carrying X amount of rounds and. Um, you wear gaiters on your trousers, uh, large gaiters, which Marlborough preferred black gaiters, but you would be brown or white. Or like, like everybody was saying earlier, there's a, a little bit of variation at this time. And actually, you could be using something called a dog lock musket at this point as well, because, again, the colonels are providing the weapons. And um, so it kind of depended in the, in the Spanish Succession War what they could get a hold of and what they liked. Um, so uh, that's that's really important. That the, at the time, the kind of acquisition of arms is at regimental level. So it's down to the colonels buying stuff. So we see a real variation between the regiments, the colonels who may be a little bit dishonest and like pocketing the profits, or people who are just kind of buying off the shelf and those who are buying, you know, top level stuff and, and shelling out for it, don't we? We see quite different arms and armour, like and Dorma say, different uniforms, some are going to be more flamboyant. So there's not this like general uniformity across everyone. Yep, and um, there's not actually a drill, man, one drill manual either. That all depends on the various, which kind of likes whatever drill manuals available. 
and that brings us a little to what we what we brought up earlier, which is the platoon firing system. Does anybody want to take take a crack at explaining that without diagrams? I don't, but I would like to ask you a burning question: Who won the engagement between the British Army and the French Army Irish? British. Do you know? Or was it? Yeah. 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 Can I say that a little bit louder, Dorman? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it was the British. I did my thesis uh, on this. Uh, <laughs> it was, it's Captain or Lieutenant Parker, Parker. is it? Yeah, yeah, it's Parker, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it was just because it reminded me, I think I'm right, it might be wrong. Uh, we had an almost identical engagement between uh, Scots at Ramillies, uh, mm. between a Scottish regiment in the French army, so ex-Jacobite basically, and a Scottish regiment in the Dutch army, so not the British army, but allied <laughs> to the British, um, you know, like all Protestants, um, yeah. and they also had a crack at each other. Um, I believe it was the Dutch Scots that won that one, so... There we go. Is that, is that Protestant work ethic uh, going, <laughs> <laughs> going into battle for them? Probably platoon fire as well, because the Dutch were the ones who invented platoon oh, fire, course, and they're yeah. the ones who taught the Brits mm-hmm. how to do it. So I'll give it a go. A platoon doesn't necessarily mean uh, what it does nowadays, where you have uh, you know several sections. Well, actually, you probably did have sections, but you're looking at um, each company divided uh, into its uh, into components. I'm not sure how many there were. Feel free Up to, to three, I think. Yeah, and then these would uh, fire by in, in, in section as opposed to so the, first uh, the entire in every company. Yeah. Fire. So you have instead of the back rank firing, you have a, a staggered effect where you would have parts of the line firing and reloading at each time, so it's a more continuous thing. You're less likely to have long periods of pause, and it's a more sustained barrage of very heavy lead balls coming out your face. Yeah. It's a a ripple effect, isn't it? It gives a continuous amount of fire when one platoon fires and the next. That will hopefully give time because you've broken the, platoon, uh, the companies down into platoons, that by the time it reaches the last company's last platoon, so like let's say 20 or 30 uh, sections, the first one's then fired again. So it's a continuous, you know, 20 or 30 seconds to reload a musket. It's a wave, it's a wave, it's a wave, which doesn't let up that on the casualties, there'll obviously be less than one big volley. It means that the enemy are receiving a constant amount of casualties, especially as these engagements are incredibly close range. Um, cannon fire is still over several miles, but musket ranges, you know, we're always talking about 80 yards, effective range. They can fire more than that, you're not going to hit a lot. So they can end up being very close engagements, which must be a nightmare for deciding when to put a a plug bayonet in. Um, Well, remember, the plug bayonet is not a thing anymore. Yes, yeah. Going out (laughs) Highland charge. Um, And so that kind of, that paints a great picture, thank you. And we're kind of coming on to Blenheim. Uh, I mean, we have completely forgotten the cavalry, but that's fine. We'll mention the cavalry at the end, and they'll do what they always do, which is sweep in, take all the glory. Fine. <laughs> um, so that brings us on to Marlborough's great victory at Blenheim. And without going into too much detail, this really is a sweeping success. Uh, and he's lauded with huge riches and titles. If anyone hasn't been to Blenheim Palace, as soon as it opens, it is vast. Uh, huge lands, titles, and everything that goes with that. What kind of reforms does he institute that, that stay in, at least for this century? Well, like, well, like many, um, as far as I'm aware, like many British generals who command in the field, 
it, it's very much a war thing. I don't know if anybody else would agree with that. Reforms move slowly, and I believe it was said in the 19th century by a French, French officer or writer that a soldier of Louis XIV's army would be able to take his place in the ranks of Napoleon's army and almost immediately know what to do because that practically nothing that mattered, really, except in matches of drill, had really changed very much. Would you two agree? Is, is that fair? Could a soldier at Blenheim fight a Waterloo? Yeah, like I kind of want to be counterfactual and say, oh, well, that's just what someone would think about the 18th century, but in reality, our topic is so complex and so much has actually changed. I don't know if I can actually say that. I mean, uh, I, I guess think technology, I, like the restrictions of technology, I mean, the musket is, is just shortens its barrel through this period. I mean, it's not changing. Um, it's, you know, minor semantic tweaks to drill manuals. Um, I mean, when we come to American stuff, I can talk more about like you know, I was just going to say, you have, a, you have a great subject to, to introduce <laughs> about yeah. certain, certain types of soldiers, though. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, yeah, it's pretty fair to say that um, the experience of conflict is, is pretty similar across a century, probably in the same way that the experience of conflict, you know, in previous centuries, if you take someone from, uh, say, like the early 1300s to the uh, late 1300s, you know, there's, there's definitely differences. Uh, but we probably don't get as vast a change as we do from 1900 to 2000 anywhere else in historical periods. Um, so it's not like, oh, there's nothing happening in the 18th century. Uh, it's just, yeah, that's just how technology works, I suppose. They hadn't had moved on much. At the same time, though, they, while their combat experience might have changed, the experience off the battlefield has evolved substantially across that period. Um, because, I mean, the army is a very new thing at the beginning. And one only has to look at the number of mutinies that happened directly after the war of the Spanish secession to realize that maybe <laughs> reform did was needed at home and uh, mm. things do start to improve or change or however you want to uh, put it uh, as the century wears on. But uh, I think there's something like four or five in Ireland alone in 1717. So <laughs> there's definitely room for improvement there. Okay. Well, I mean, one of my favorite facts you're saying about the battlefields being the same is that um, Marlborough spent a night in Papalot Farm and wrote in his diary that it was the best place to defend Bel uh, Brussels from the south. And that's basically his Mont Saint-Jean where Wellington set up Waterloo. And we know that he, he read those diaries and it's just kind of conjecture whether he remembered that because he read it when he was shipping out to India or he just had the same eye as Marlborough. Um, yeah, okay, definitely circle back to that. Discipline and, and, and mutiny, very relatively unusual in, in later conflicts for the army. They were kind of like case by case. A few men might decide to like shoot one of the officers and they'd shoot them. So this is, is this large-scale mutiny? What's happening there in Dorman? Uh, so this is um, something I'm hoping to <laughs> delve more deeper into as I continue on with this stupid PhD I'm doing. Um, but <laughs> you have several – at first it's mainly over um, pay because I think the administration isn't really in place to handle pay packets at this stage and because it's at the behest of the colonel to supply the pay. Often there's you know, back pay and that sort of thing. And some regiments just it, – it's too much for them and they just – uh, outright say we will take up arms if you do not sort this out and they're usually talked down from that stance however as sort of the years go on you also have issues with disbandment and sort of moving men around uh, where men are moved from one regiment to the other maybe they don't want this or they're just going to lose their job 
and you have one mutiny in particular, I think it was in Athlone, but uh, don't quote me on that, where the men march out onto parade knowing that they're probably going to be disbanded with powder and ball under their hats. So they're carrying their pieces and they have their hangers and they're told this is happening. So they immediately all take off their hats, load their muskets and march out of town. And it takes several loyal regiments to come back and sort of rein them in. And there is an exchange of fire and uh, eventually they are put down. So it's not the sort of, I know, I know there's an image of sort of this, uh, you know, bloody back discipline <laughs> throughout the century, but it takes a while to get to that point, at least, I guess, in Ireland. Maybe it's just the backwaters, I don't know. I mean, even, even uh, if you think about the Black Watch mutiny in the 70, what, 1743, uh, like 139 men just decided to go back to Scotland because they didn't want to serve in the West Indies. There was a, They weren't actually going to the West Indies, they were being sent to Flanders, but uh, they thought it was the West Indies. And only, I think, three of them were executed for, mu for that mutiny. So there's more at play. Than yep. That's, that bears out with the Irish examples as well. You've got the ringleaders killed, but the men themselves are told, just get back in line. Just do your job. Stop messing about. <laughs> I'm presuming they needed the men, actually. You just couldn't afford to shoot the whole regiment. And, uh, yeah. If they're going to be disbanded anyway, you'd think, why bother? But <laughs> clearly these guys aren't motivated. <laughs> Uh, my my stooping generalisation is normally when a regiment is disbanded, they're normally in the history books called back up within one or two years, maybe under a different name, but they're normally needed for another war. This is this is a century of war and conflict, isn't it? Really, uh, more than any other, we don't really get a long period of peace. The War of the Austrian Secession uh, is a result of Maria Theresa taking the throne on Austria and Europe thinking that uh, she's not going to do a good job. <laughs> um, so Frederick the Great, uh, having basically taken his dad's pet project, which was the army, and thought, I'm going to use this. Um, I apologize for the paraphrasing I'm doing to European <laughs> history here, Josh. But <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, Frederick invades uh, Silesia in Austria, and then the rest of the European monarchs just circle like hawks. Uh, Britain gets involved and uh, sort of allies itself with uh, the Netherlands and Austria. It's sort of a, I guess you could call it the League of Augsburg, brought back together one last time. <laughs> and they march against the French. Um, they win the Battle of Dettingen and then they get slapped at the Battle of Fontenoy. Um, pretty embarrassingly, to be honest. Now, that was Cumberland at the head, uh, Butcher Cumberland, who did instill a lot of reforms as a result of this. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, Really, he blamed it on the Allies, and there is probably a case for that, but it's not the high point of the period, shall we say. No, not for the British Army. In fact, uh, they... It's kind of... It's, def it's a definite low point because officers don't act in the way that they thought they... that, that hire... Well, that... Officers didn't act in ways that they should have acted and things like that. They are sometimes too reticent. They were inexperienced field commanders like the Duke of Cumberland, and de Sachs really taught him a lesson in, in what not to do at uh, Fontenoy. Um, and of course, bringing up Cumberland and tying that together with the experience of the battlefield that Andy was talking about before, you have the curious case of um, the British Army being called upon to fight the last great Jacobite rebellion. And again, it, that's a pretty mixed performance, to be honest, because they lose the early battles, and these and even regular troops having to face the Highland charge break in front of it. Um, 
And this is a, a very scary moment because actually it gives the French, it should have given the French the opportunity to actually invade uh, or thre threaten to invade and help topple King George, to be honest. But it didn't work out that way, it ended up in uh, disaster at Culloden. Uh, interestingly, what we talked about platoon fire before, General Hawley, Hangman Hawley, as they call them, um, had the theory that you could not face the Highland Charge unless you fired by rank. Um, and, at, and get this, from between 10 to 12 paces, when the Highlanders were 10 to 12 paces from you, each rank was to fire successively, obliquely towards the center of that massive madman. And he said that that was the only way to stop it. Bear in mind, he never actually did. <laughs> Uh, but, um, but he was convinced. Was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's basically treating the Jacobite charge as a cavalry charge. I yeah. Mean, don't face cavalry with platoon volleys, you need battalion volleys. And mm -hmm. guess, yeah, like the range thing is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't actually remember. There's like, it's been covered in some detail as to how they delivered fire at Culloden. Um, I think it was by battalions, and they got mm. about two volleys in. Um, yeah. And it didn't work. The Highlanders cut through the fourth foot yep. and turned the flank of the 37th. And it was only General Husk's second line which came up uh, to blunt, to, to contain the, the breakthrough that uh, stopped the charge from working. Because the difference between Culloden and, say, Falkirk or Preston Pans was that the line did not break, it was cut through. So the infantry actually stood and took it at bayonet point, which is testified by the fact that uh, most of Barrels, the fourth foot Barrels, Colonel Barrels' regiment, um, had bent bayonets, uh, um, saber uh, cuts and bad cuts and lacerations to their arms and uh, 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 and stuff, and, and interestingly telling things like that. But that was an unusual instance in terms of what the British Army had to face. Uh, generally speaking, they had to deal with uh, the platooning worked so long as you weren't trying, you know, fighting an essentially medieval, uh, medievally driven sort of tactic. It's interesting as well um, that at uh, Fontenoy, the Black Watch employed mm. strange, irregular, I mean, Highland tactics, yeah. in volleys and then kind of getting down on the ground to reload and then jumping up again and stuff like that. So but, it's interesting that they had the leeway to do that within the structure of the British Army. Uh, they did, because they actually, the, the colonel actually asked permission for his men to fight in the Highland style. And they all knew what that meant, even though they'd been drilled as British soldiers. So when they went to attack, they did the old Highland thing where they dropped to the ground as the volleys came at them, fired back and then charged with their broadswords which all Highland regiments had at that time. And in the French service, the commander of the Irish, or one of the Irish regiments, uh, was the Viscount Clare, who was then tasked with leading the French army that was going to invade afterwards, but because of Culloden, he never actually got to invade Ireland again, <laughs> as, he, as he had been promised. Uh, so it's all interwoven and interconnected. Mm -hmm. so that, does, that does take us to the Seven Years' War, though. I mean, the... 
it's it's skipping over a very interesting period of. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, Marcus, we derailed your podcast. No, <laughs> no, um, this is great. So um, there's so many things going on here, and of course we really should talk about the Jacobite uh, rebellion. We haven't even mentioned the the kind of motivations behind that and the the king over the sea, which is one of my favourite little like kind of quirks and toasts of the era is going on. And there's, there's so much there to kind of unpick in, in culture as well as in history. Uh, and the kind of what could is one of the biggest what ifs of history, if, uh, uh, especially well for, for British for English history maybe um, for what could have could have been if uh, a different king had been on the throne. Um, but again, I come back to the question. Apart from like we were talking about firing obliquely, so we're talking at a slight angle um, in layman's terms. Are we, we're not seeing many developments over this era. Many many changes. Done thinking. There was the sort of famous semi-mythical bayonet drill used at Cornwall, mm. which is fun to talk about. I volunteer at the visitor centre uh, yeah. when it's not closed down. Um, <laughs> to talk about because uh, it's one of those things that people who aren't really into history say, oh, they actually won because of this special technique that they learned before Culloden. The idea was that uh, a Jacobite Highlander armed with the shield, the Taj, and the broadsword, as he rushes at you, he will raise his right arm with his sword, exposed uh, the gap underneath, and so rather than you fighting with your musket and bayonet, the Jacobite coming at you, you would thrust the Jacobite to your right as he raised his sword to hit your mate, so you catch him in this unprotected part and stab him through, which looks great on paper, but obviously the reality of the battlefield conditions, it, it probably didn't really do anything. I think, <laughs> I think so much as it was used and was effective, it, people have said it was potentially, it gave the regulars uh, the sort of the mindset and the courage to stand and use their bayonets, mm-hmm. as opposed to just running as soon as they made hand-to-hand contact with mm-hmm. big guys with swords and shields. Um, so it might have contributed to the fact that Farrell... And that had happened a lot before, hadn't it? The, the Highland Charge had been successful, and the line was... regiments had broken. Yeah, I don't think there was ever a case of a line regiment withstanding a Jacobite charge when it reached them, was there? There, there was one at uh, Falkirk. Right. Coincidentally, it was the 4th Foot uh, and the 37th again that stood at Falkirk, although, to be fair, they did not meet the actual full force of it. It was sort of spent by the time they had to deal with it. As always, I'm just in awe in Josh's brain that he can pick out the particular battle, the particular regiment, <laughs> the year, and possibly what uh, state the moon was in that day. Um, yeah, okay, probably, so, yeah, there's one. The, the Highland Charge was... Uh, yeah, and that's just a blip, and it's not really a thing. It's you yeah. know, a fun history book thing, but in reality it probably wasn't. Yeah, I mean, the, the bayonet drill, like, I find it kind of absurd that people have laid so much stress on it, because, first of all, not every Highlander used a sword. A lot of them had muskets or pole arms, and so, and also, it also assumes the Highlander will not stop to fence with you and cannot see to his left and right. <laughs> it, it also sort of requires everyone to collide at the same yeah. time. Everyone has to go hard. Right. Exactly. Like it's not pipe drill anymore. Yeah. At Culloden as well, you know, you've shot down at least most of the front ranks. So they're going to be arriving in dribs and drabs as well. So it's. Which, which guy do I think? <laughs> 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 
tourist map. That that scene yeah. at, at the on the first Lord of the Rings movie with like the camera yeah. panning down the elves and it's, it's like beautifully <laughs> <Yeah>. synchronized. <laughs> it's like wow, it's really nice of them to coordinate their attack like that. It's brilliant. I mean, the the, the colonel I think it was uh, the or captain of the grenadiers of of, of Barrel's regiment tried to meet the first Highlander personally, and he did impale him through the throat with his spontoon. But the second Highlander then cut his head in two. And that's the other problem. Once you have stabbed your guy, there's another guy behind him. So <laughs> I believe Monroe's regiment actually had the idea that the first rank uses the bayonet, and the second rank fire through over the shoulder to try and prevent that. That could potentially highlight a slight tweak. Um, mm. So much as the bayonet drill, we've not got onto it yet, but the bayonet drill at Culloden in this period is uh, muskets held at breast height, sort of like yes. pipes, right? Yes. Um, that's why they can do that at Culloden and kind of hold them at bay. Mm-hmm. And then by the revolution, I think it's the 1760s, they switch yeah. to what we're familiar with today in the Napoleonic period, where the musket is held down at stomach height, kind of angled upwards with the bayonet, because it's more natural that way. Yeah, it is. It's the, the early pike drills like it, it's. I say pike. Sorry, <laughs> but it is like a pike. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the English Civil War diagrams, the way they to the order to charge your pike is exactly the same as charge your bayonet. And uh, it's Wolf, I think, that adopts the uh, waist high position. And although the French, we should say, have already been using waist high um, bayonet posture. They, they favoured the bayonet anyway, and it's it's interesting. Indeed. There's a um, there's an account from oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but he's a uh, uh, Drake. He, the book's called Amiable Renegade, and basically he goes around enlisting in regiments, deserting, getting arrested, <laughs> and re-enlisting. It's a great book. Um, but in that he puts uh, he says that anyone who trains at the Pike is sort of more masculine. Uh, sort of they're, the, they're the creme de la creme they're like the elite manly soldier whereas these newfangled guns are just they're, they're not really you know worth anything or anything like that so it would never catch on it's just a fad yeah exactly it's like, like I mean, it's it, an internet it, thing <laughs> so it's, it's that um, it, it's interesting how like the martial element of the pike uh, sort of carries on even when it's entering redundancy mm-hmm. uh, I, I suppose redundancy in the British service if you look at Sweden it's a different yeah. story but and Russia and stuff like that. But is it, is it Turain or de Sachs who, who writes about the effectiveness of musketry as being, well, it's actually, it doesn't kill anybody kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a really interesting debate during the period about people, sort of like the national identity of armies and how they vary depending on what nation. So you have, again, a little bit further forward, but the idea of um, firepower being the most important thing in the battlefield is sort of very Prussian. And then the idea of hand-to-hand engagements, um, close combat is quite French. They're, you know, Elan, the French and Russians mm-hmm. with the bayonet, and that's how they win. Um, interesting, the French trying to actually combat that mindset during the American Revolutionary Period, where there's a big debate within France between French commanders as to whether they can betray their national psyche and become <laughs> Prussianized uh, <laughs> in this classic uh, French idea. I'm not really sure what you could say where Britain fits into that. I think there is a lot of interest in firepower. Um, yeah. But it sways backwards and forwards. I mean, the revolution gets much more combat-based, which we'll probably talk about later. Okay. That links in kind of... Maybe, maybe Dorman, can you tell us what is the British soldier like at the time then? So are they, we're not doing conscripts at this stage. What is the character? We're, we don't have a lot of Irish, legally. Um, but... You know, let's talk crime rates. 
let's talk ill discipline or discipline. What what are they like? Give us a flavour of them because this is really well, your bag. Yeah, so your average soldier is probably about five six. Uh, five seven, brown hair, and most likely called John. Uh, if you want, based on my sample study, which was about well, this is actually no, I take that back. If he's a deserter, he's likely to be called John, because uh, that's where a lot of my information comes from. John's a full coward. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think you're looking at around. If you want, I suppose a national national percentage, you're probably um, maybe 30% Irish uh, at any given point. Uh, Scottish, is, it's di- difficult to quantify because they have sort of more homogenous regiments of Scots that they will be scattered throughout the others as well, but it's, they're more concentrated. Um, he's not a particularly pleasant person. Uh, society doesn't view them particularly favourably either. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Um, they're, they're kind of... Um, there's a juvenility to them, uh, if I if I can <laughs> say that. It's uh, they, they're kind of viewed as like childish almost because not that they're playing dress up, but there's, because of the niceties of discipline and the fact that they can't take wives and anything like that. There's a perceived again lack of masculinity to the army, which is kind of surprising uh, from what you might expect sort of today, where it's like hyper masculine. Um, they discipline wise. Um, well, they all, they're all big fans of the drink, uh, has to be said, uh, particularly in Ireland. Um, there's a great uh, diary. Um, I, I, I've talked about this before, I think, but um, it's just after the American, uh, War of Amer- American War of Independence, and it's a surgeon who's in Ireland, and he's trying to figure out why all these soldiers based in Ireland have terrible sores on their legs and he figures out oh it's from the whiskey and there's a soldier who has the surgery done and it takes weeks for this surgery obviously lancing the, the things and everything like this it takes ages and then immediately afterwards he goes back to the pub and ruins all the hard work that's been done and the, the, the surgeon himself writes and just says yeah he undid all my work in an hour would have taken me three weeks so you've got a fairly alcoholic <laughs> service um, and then I suppose in their off t- off duty time, it depends very much on where they're based. Uh, if you're in the West Indies, you're probably dying of plague. Um, that's a bit facetious, but it, 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 West Indies is kind of the worst it's place. True. It's yeah, true. it's the worst place you could be sent. Uh, Gibraltar, you're dying of boredom. Um, and then, I suppose if you're in the British Isles, you've got a very different experience if you're based in Scotland versus Ireland versus England. Ireland at this point has the largest number of sort of soldiers on payroll at any given point, uh, anywhere between 12 to 16,000. Uh, now this fluctuates throughout the period, but um, they they are consistent uh, in that period. Uh, they're housed in barracks in Ireland. In England, they're housed with the people sometimes, uh, but in Ireland that was deemed to be a terrible idea. Separate the army from the people. Don't let them get infected with Catholicism or anything like that. Um, so you have regiments scattered throughout the countryside as well because there's an element of mass suppression to it. So you'll you'll have your regiments broken up by companies. So you'll have a couple of dragoon companies over here and then a couple more over here and then the majority will be based in Dublin and they'll only come together for parades and the like. Um, there is issues with desertion. There is issues with, as I mentioned, mutiny. Uh, so it's it's not... It's not a particularly glorious force. It's not what com- what's often assumed when you look at, like, so, I guess, Wellington's army. Well, Zach might disagree <laughs> but, <laughs> but, regarding uh, discipline, but it's um, 
there's no real one character to it. It very much depends on where you are. And I think it's unfair to assume a single character to it. But the individual soldier is not a particularly pleasant person. He probably drinks a lot. Unlikely to have a family. Um, if he does, great. If he doesn't, whatever. And the issue of religion is also an interesting one. Um, likely to be fairly religious, but also there's an, a degree of cynicism to it. And there's one account from a Methodist soldier who um, he he's basically bullied for his religion because he's, he's seen as just this outcast. So that's there's an element of that to it too. So it's, there's a lot going on, basically. Well, he's banned from being Catholic. Uh, uh, it, I mean... It depends how devout you want to be. If you have to declare your allegiance to the head of the Church of England, who is obviously the king. So if you do that, or queen. So if you do that, you're renouncing the Pope. Right. So if you were willing to take that step away from your faith, you could get in. And I'll feel if you pretended not to be Irish. <laughs> um, say, and you're saying there's, there's like no Irish, and then you're going, well, actually, 30% of them are still Irish. Yeah. Really easy. Yeah. Well, that, that, statistic com- that statistic comes from post. Uh, actually, no, actually, I take that back. That's 1730s, 1740s. And then it gets higher post 1760s. After the Seven Years' War, they realize we actually have quite a lot of manpower here. So maybe we'll allow periods of Irish recruitment. And uh, that's where you have things like the Enniskillings copping up, who obviously have quite a high percentage of Protestants. Um, and uh, they're very well behaved before they go off to America. There's, I've got the, the accounts of their drills and everything. And these guys are very good. They're very good soldiers, very well disciplined. And, well, I don't know how they do in America, but <laughs> at least they start off strong. <laughs> Fascinating. That's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, there's some of the same old troubles. I mean, the British Army even today is a bit of a problem with alcoholism, and it's only now being like kind of brought out that maybe drinking yourself until you get naked and this sick every Friday night is possibly not a healthy culture for a career. Um, and then, oh, I'm, I'm actually kind of serious on that. Um, and, yeah, and then are they unpleasant? Well, yeah, because you're recruiting them to kill other people, which is a particularly unpleasant career path. Uh, yeah, but it's the same old troubles, and but it sounds like the discipline's maybe not there in the same way that later that they might be let off the leash and then come back on. Uh, yeah, it sounds recruitment's like actually. It's uh, I don't know if it differs too much. You can jump in on the Napoleonic section, but um, you have a beating up party who goes around and recruits people. That's the official way to do it. But there's a lot of unofficial ways to recruit people too. Uh, getting them drunk and forcing them to sign the King's Shilling afterwards. Yep. Abducting people. Sometimes. Uh, there's a great story of a guy who's in this. I think this might be in Scotland. And then the town rises up in arms, goes to the beating party, kicks the crap out of them if you're part of the term, steals your man back and takes them back home. <laughs> so there's a little bit of pushback, but it, there isn't obviously conscription. Uh, it's a volunteer service. And cool. there's a there's a strong discourse in a this officer called Dalrymple writes this uh, discourse on how to improve the army, and he says that if you uh, if you re- take volunteers, they can turn into good soldiers. If you press them into service, they are the scum of the earth and the refuse of mankind. So that is the discrepancy. And there's a recognition that so do not basically do not conscript people; they will not be good soldiers. And you said they did have conscription for brief periods. Uh, it, it's, I, I suppose there are press They're just beating up so many people yeah. and taking them it's basically conscription anyway yeah yeah. I mean there's periods where their press acts are put in place where you're told you know, let's have a serious recruitment here chaps and uh, they, they do 
I suppose, bend the rules a little bit. But in terms of the, your average totting up of the regiments that will happen throughout the century, it's volunteer. Okay. So it's, it's a bit different to the modern sponsored YouTube adverts that you might now see to join the army. Um, yeah, exactly. And the recruits themselves uh, are often vetted. So there's a distinction between recruit and, or hang on, how do I do? enlisted and recruit, I guess, uh, if, right. I, if you know what I mean. As in, just because the recruiting party grabbed you doesn't necessarily mean you'll end up in the ranks. You're not going to be fit for service for quite some time. Uh, so those, that distinction is made, particularly coming into the 1770s. Yeah, I mean, we, we recorded earlier one of my favourite Sharp reunions, uh, which is Sharp's Regiment, and you have that where the doctor kind of cast a brief eye over all of them and then gets flipped a, a guinea and signs them all off as being fit. And it's kind of like, well, the doctors inspected them. Back in Marlborough's day, there was a contemporary um, uh, play called The Recruiting Sergeant, mm-hmm. um, which was written by a chap called Lieutenant Parker uh, of, of, of a Grenadier Company or something like that. And I have a little excerpt from it here, which kind of lays out what they were looking for. And, you know, quote, if any gentlemen, soldiers or others have a mind to serve Her Majesty and pull down the French king, if any apprentices have severe masters, any children and dutiful parents, if any servants have too little wages or any husbands too much wife, let him repair to the noble Sergeant Kite at the sign of the raven in this good town of Shrewsbury. Where he shall receive present relief and entertainment. Mm-hmm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. So you're looking for people who are out of work and bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they can give them work and boredom. Anyway, um, yeah. as you're saying, going to places and seeing the world and then getting bored in barracks. Yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. always lead to well, good discipline. Uh, I think we'll, what we'll do is we'll circle back and come to the ill discipline, especially in Ireland, because I think I want to let Dorman kind of go off the leash. Go mad, go mad. <laughs> <laughs> Something you mentioned is that like, people like the Innes Killings, you know, great regiments, until they went to America. And I, we can't do, like, the full thing with America, because I've done that with Robbie recently. But what I want to know is, Robbie, can you give us, like, a little bit of background on the conflict and the, the behaviours of the British Army, maybe, and we'll kind of go from there. Uh, yeah, I mean, Revolutionary War comes about... Wait, are we talking the Revolution or the Seven Years' War? 
I want to say, let's do the revolution, though, and we're going to have to circle back to Wolf because I think we all love Wolf a little bit. So. Right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Revolutionary War comes out of the Imperial Crisis of the sort of late uh, 1760s. Uh, basically, most people know the story. It's a dispute between Great Britain and her 13 North American colonies over issues of taxation and representation. Uh, and it all boils over. Um, the army is already there, but more are deployed. And uh, we get fully fledged conflict between uh, Great Britain, her allies, and um, the American colonists and their allies after 1778. Um, so that's essentially the root of the conflict. Um, the army at the start of the war is not especially well prepared for it. Uh, they're in an interesting place in so much as uh, senior officers um, do have reasonable combat experience because most of them are in the Seven Years' War. Uh, as junior officers, uh, they carry a lot of the uh, knowledge they gained from that conflict over into the revolution. Um, having said that, the actual sort of rank and file, for the most part, don't have a great deal of specific combat experience. It's not to say that um, they have none at all. Uh, during this period, uh, there's a lot of unrest in the UK. I mean, it's Georgian Britain. There's, there's unrest all the time. Uh, you get events similar to the infamous Boston Massacre in 1770. They're not even that uncommon in, in Britain. You have the army opening fire at crowds at Spitalfield, at St. George's Fields, uh, places like this. Uh, there's a lot of anti-smuggling operations in the UK. Um, there's obviously the whole Irish dimension. Uh, there's a small war in the Caribbean. Um, I think it's a slave uprising. Can't remember which island though. So they're not wholly inexperienced, but for the most part, uh, they haven't seen action uh, when fighting starts in 1775. There's an interesting um, study that claims, I can't remember offhand who did it, uh, but it claims that actually the American or the Patriot militia at Lexington and Concord had more combat experience due to people having been in the Seven Years' War than the actual regulars that they fought on that day, um, which kind of turns on the heads the whole idea that the British Army in this period is the best in the world and they're just going to stomp over the Americans and actually it's a big underdog story. Um, the British Army in 1775 is kind of a bit iffy and uh, it takes a lot of um, hard lessons to become competent. Yeah. At the, uh, if, I, if I can jump in, in up until 1770, it was tradition for the regiments in Ireland to be a lot smaller. Uh, reason being that if they were smaller, you can just fill them up really rapidly when you need them and then ship them further afield. However, in 1770, they decided, let's expand these regiments out and bring them up to full size. So you have a massive recruitment drive for something like 20, I think it's, it is about 20 regiments who are based in Ireland at that point, all of which are desperate for recruits and will take basically anyone, which might explain <laughs> five years down the line why a lot of them are lacking combat experience. Okay, they might be built around a cadre of officers, sure, as you mentioned, but most of the rank and file would have just been scraped very recently from the bottom of the barrel. Uh, so you've got regiments coming back from the Caribbean basically being glued back together as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a stent. I, I think it's not, maybe not stent, but recently restocked, I suppose. Yeah. And I think there is an understanding that that is an issue early on in the war. And part of the reason that Britain struggles with numbers in America, well, I mean, it's the reason they hire Hessians or Hessians I never say it right. I say Hessians for some reason. Most people say Hessians. Whatever. We, we say Hessians um, because of uh, Sleepy Hollow, don't we, really? Thank you. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, yeah, so Hessians, uh, German state forces, are allied to Britain contractually. 
uh, Britain has to hire them because there is a manpower shortage because they realize if they rush troops into battle in the Americas, they're going to have a bad time. So it takes at least two years of training uh, to bring a soldier sort of up to the standard that they believe is required to fight in America. Um, so if you've got soldiers being going into the army in 75, 76 is sort of the big push for recruits, they're not able to take the field uh, until 78, 79, which is why you have um, manpower shortages, really. And what's the way of getting over manpower shortages? Let's say specifically in America, are they, you know, the Hessian Hessians, are they just basically hiring mercenaries? Are they recruiting locally? Uh, well, something we never really hear much about. Yeah, it's, it's the loyalists, the people that didn't want the okay. uh, revolutionary. Um, I mean, the first answer to how do they get over manpower shortages, they don't, and that's why they lose the war. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that the government does. Um, the Hessians are, are a good place to start because... Um, any sort of person that studies the Crown forces in the revolution will get a bit prickly when you call Hessians mercenaries. Um, because that was the propaganda line taken by uh, the, the patriots, the revolutionaries, and was very effective. Um, but technically, it kind of it stretches the, the definition of a mercenary. So if you think of a, a mercenary they're not, soldier... They're not Hanoverian at the time. The Crown uh, is in a personal union with Hanover. So they're not like the King's German Legion, are they? Well, there were some... So this is a whole other topic, but we call it yeah. In reality, there were six different German states that provided troops, I think. Hanover was one of them, but the Hanoverian regiments weren't sent to America. They helped garrison Gibraltar, I think, um, and that sort of area. So Hessian is a catch-all phrase because most of them, or actually just under a majority, so not even most of them, but many of them were from the German state of Hesse-Kassel. Nice. Uh, but there were well, Brunswick, um, the other Hess, there were two. Thank you very much. Um, Waldeck. Mm. Um, I'm not going to be able to name all of them. I think I'm missing one, but yeah. Uh, yeah Hessian. Okay. Like it, we're going catch or we're calling them Hessian because we're lazy. Exactly. And it's a bit like calling them all German and then actually some of them are technically from Poland later on and all that kind of, yeah, the borders change. Um, okay. Yeah, troops, yeah. Yeah, troops like this have been called Hessians since um, the 1740s. Troops moved to, some were hired to fight in Scotland in 1745 and they were also called Hessians. They fought at Blenheim and they were called Hessians. Um, it's, a, it's a common thing. Hess Cassell actually made the idea of hiring its army out a thing. Like they created a pre made army package with like a cavalry regiment and some artillery and some like infantry and any country could hire these guys to go and fight in their war which is where you get the kind of the, the misapprehension that they're mercenaries so i think so the idea of a mercenary soldier or a band of mercenary soldiers is their guys and you pay them and they fight for you it doesn't matter who you are if you pay them they fight for you the hessians were fighting for their land grave their prince their monarch they were fighting for their country it just so happens that the, their monarch was allied to britain because he was getting paid a lot of money. So, it. so it's a little bit more political. I mean, yeah, you really see it with some Swiss regiments that they, yeah. you even see like loyalist Russians and uh, loyalist French in the, in the later areas, and they move around to different nationalities, but that's because the politics change and yeah. then they get paid, but yeah. they it's get like A Hessian regiment, you know, are getting, each soldier's getting paid by Britain and they go and fight for Britain. It's their, it's their standing army and their monarch says, you're going to go and fight for the British because we're allied to the British because the British are paying me loads of money. So They're it's not really, mercenary. It's another form of alliance. It's a bit dodgy, but it's not, it's not crazy. Um, the other manpower shortages just 
briefly skipping over it. And there's actually quite a lot of recruitment, um, well, not a lot, but there's interesting recruitment into the regular British forces from Europe. So it's estimated about 10% of British regulars in the revolution were not British born. So there were um, Dutch, uh, a lot of different German states. So you actually had occasionally recruiting parties would go to German states and recruit directly, which is kind of weird because you think the Germans fighting alongside the British are the Hessians and the Hessian regiments. But there are some red-coated British regulars who are actually of German descent. Um, there's a story of one Dutch guy who had a terrible time because he did not understand any English at all. And yeah, he did not get on well with his regiment. Uh, so they're so desperate for manpower, they are just bringing in um, some Europeans to sort of bolster the ranks. You have, uh, I can't remember the year, but at some point during the Revolutionary War, they very much relaxed the idea that Catholics can't join the army because then they can get uh, French Canadians, who are mostly Catholic, um, kind of on side to make sure that they don't jo join the revolutionaries. Um, and you have the Loyalists, which I feel like I'm just... Totally, totally separate subjects. But yeah, Americans who are pro um, the British for whatever reason, and they can either be recruited directly into regular regiments in the standing army. They can join uh, the provincial corps, which is essentially like the colonial version of the standing army. Uh, so they're still professional soldiers, but they're in loyalist all units. And then you get volunteer loyalist militias, which are just the same as the revolutionary ones, but on the other side. So it's a big hodgepodge. Just a huge hodgepodge for that. I mean, I know that, uh, especially for the listeners, we've covered this in uh, quite a lot of depth about the light infantry. And if anyone hasn't heard that, you know, I encourage at the end of this, you go back and uh, listen to Robbie's one. The cartoon that Steve did is Fantastic Hats. Uh, and we kind of, we talked a lot about hats, didn't we? Um, but this is where we also get some other stuff. And I don't think we talked about the Rangers very much in that. Actually, we talked about like the, the British light infantry. And then the Rangers... British? Are they loyalists? Are they a mixed match? How do? Because especially Robert's Rangers come in massively into this, uh, yeah. but he's not the only one doing it. But where do they fit in the scheme? Um, so they are. I mean, the origins, as you point out, there was uh, Robert Rogers during the Seven Years' War, French and Indian War, if you're American. Um, so very famously, they are American colonists who adopt the Native American style of warfare. Um, very irregular. Uh, ranging, literally, uh, they're expected to be able to cover vast distances and mount raids and attack in unexpected places and they fight in forests and all that sort of stereotype that we think of the American style of warfare. Um, they're sort of the, the go-to guys for that. Uh, they teach the British a lot. Um, they actually have like a ranger school that Rogers sets up where he takes uh, officers from the regular army and teaches them how to range. And then they disseminate that knowledge um, back to their regiments. Uh, in the revolution, it's a little bit different. Robert Rogers is an alcoholic, and he's really past his best by the time the revolution kicks off. He tries to join the Continental Army. George Washington is like, we don't want you. He goes to the British. They take him on. Uh, he forms a Ranger Regiment, the Queen's Rangers, uh, but they're not very effective because he's past it. Um, and eventually he's sort of shimmied off. I don't know what happens to him. I can't remember. Um, ends up at the dead of Britain. I don't know, before or after the revolution. I can't remember. But um, the Queen's Rangers are then taken over by a British officer, John Gray of Simcoe, who reforms them and makes them a very effective uh, loyalist American group. Um, it's kind of weird because the regiment, uh, it's, it's a legion. So basically, uh, a legion in this period is a regiment that contains uh, infantry and cavalry, sometimes light artillery. Um, so Rogers, even, oh, sorry, Simcoe, even though it's just one regiment, he has um, hussars, 
He has a rifle company. Uh, he has a Highland company for some reason that is just Highland Scots. But it's cool to have one. Yeah, exactly. And it means that we can debate endlessly as to whether they had kilts or not, because we don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so he had the, the, the Royal Highland Immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's kind of like this little catch-all unit of uh, the Queen's Rangers that were very effective. I will uh, argue firstly with people as to whether they were the most effective Royalist provincial corps unit or whether it was the British Legion. But uh, that's a different thing. So for another time, maybe. And then there's Buffer's Tory Rangers. Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. Were very much more like what Robert Rogers' Rangers were, and they fought with the Iroquois on the northern frontier. And, and as we've said, you know, we, we mentioned the other podcast as well, but Ferguson, we've got, you've said you've got a rifle company there, and this is. This is now actually where I start to get excited because it's changing technology and changing doctrine, not just because of the rifles and Sean Bean and I'm a reenactor. Um, but genuinely, it, it's cool because it's development. We're actually moving forward. You said there's a ranger school. I mean, that's a standing school aside from at a depot doing drill. Tactics, development, things are changing. People are thinking. People are being trained to use their brain. And I think that's quite, I think it's quite cool. It is until, I mean, the Ranger School is the Seven Years' War, and then they promptly forget it all and have to relearn it in the Revolution. And then they forget it again and have to relearn it in the Napoleonic Wars. If you you want a theme for this episode of the British Army, it's the British Army learning something, immediately forgetting it, having to relearn it, doing a bit better, then forgetting it again, and then doing the same thing over again. (laughs) Fair enough. I'm trying to think of what that's the equivalent to, like teaching me maths algebra at school <laughs> like you can explain that to me as many times as you you want Mr Jenkins but I'm just not getting why A and B and C are going to be up there when you put a power to them I'm just like what um, yeah you teach me one day I get it two days later don't um, okay yeah it does seem like a goldfish kind of moment that we're getting somewhere especially with Robert Rogers and then it goes back down and it seems bizarre that you can almost trace um, Robert Rogers to like Experimental Rifle Corps, the 95th, and actually there isn't really that connection because it keeps dropping out each time and there's not a pathway between them. It's very much to do with like specific conflicts as well. The reason they gave Rogers a time of day was because they were getting their butts kicked by the French and Canadian um, forces who were pretty much using Native American tactics to contain... British incursions into the Ohio and into Canada, and they had nothing to, to, to deal with it. So it's another case of the British rise to the challenge of adapting and then decide, well, we don't need that anymore. I mean, there's something to be said as well for just the way knowledge and information was disseminated in the 18th century versus the way we think of it today. You know, you think of today, the army has trained people and there's manuals and it's taught and it's just done like this and it's all written down. Whereas in the 18th century, it's just sort of disseminated through people talking, conversing, sharing ideas, but not necessarily all referring back to like a single manual. Um, there's probably stuff that can be said in there about how, you know, it's without going overboard, there's the officer class and they run the show and there's these ideas that they bounce because they know each other fraternally and they sort of share ideas and thoughts and concepts and they philosophize about it. But they don't necessarily sit down and have like a big committee meeting where they say this is what the army is now going to do until sort of the Napoleonic period, I guess you could say. Yeah, I guess that's when they, they do 
put things down to uh, Sir John Moore and actually actually he taught a lot of his stuff by Germans who know light infantry stuff so it is kind of connected there I think uh, what we're not t- going to be able to touch on is actually the Germans managed to keep up the the light infantry, the rifles, and those kind of really niche tactics of skirmishing and ranging uh, up much better because of their constant fighting uh, throughout their soldiers kind of stay in and keep this professional soldier, um, soldiery in. Um, so is there much that we're taking away from the American Revolutionary War, or is it 90% plus kind of being, right, we've lost tails between our legs coming home and we're going to forget our lessons um there's a bit of uh enforced forgetting shall we say um because after the revolution you have a bit of a conflict within the hierarchy of the army fighting for the soul of the army more or less uh there's a theory among british high commands that the tactics employed in america would not work in europe um that's you know, this more sort of light type of warfare, more skirmishy, uh, wouldn't work if you come up against a solid wedge of, say, a French column or something like that. It's an interesting debate because there were times when the British actually did encounter the French in the Revolution. Um, there's a battle in the Caribbean at the Vige Peninsula where they completely decimate uh, four French columns, partly using light infantry tactics, partly because there's loads of uh, Royal Artillery 18-pounders firing as well, which helps. But, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a bit of back and forth about that, but generally uh, the army hierarchy fears that uh, North America isn't applicable uh, when it comes to Europe and they're expecting to fight a European war at this point. So they go down, same with the French to an extent, they go down the, the Prussianization route uh, where it becomes about um, drill discipline, uh, platoon firing, uh, tight close order ranks, all that sort of stuff, uh, which is where you are kind of at when the French Revolution kicks off. Okay. Thank you. So I think that ties in nicely. The army's coming back, and where a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it's going, is Ireland. Um, is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dance, because that's just not helping anyone. Um, but yeah, he's doing a little jig, and that's making me laugh. Uh, but yeah, they, they're coming back, and I mean, considerably, I presume a lot of them are going to, to Scotland with the Jacobite threats not ever really kind of gone away 100%. Um, there's a lot going to end up in Gibraltar, the great siege of Gibraltar is kind of on the horizon, um, which is a great one, uh, maybe for another time. Uh, Gibraltar is a fantastic uh, siege and case study of kind of pig-headed stubbornness, really. Um, and it's some and weird cannons. Yeah, weird <laughs> downward-firing cannons, caves, uh, defences. I, I love Gibraltar. Um, I really do, both as a holiday destination and a historical study. But that does link us on to Ireland. So, Dorman, the army, when it comes back, is it different to the army that went away as a starting point? Right. So, as, as I mentioned, uh, there was that big recruitment drive and there was the change in doctrine in Ireland. So, but to, I guess to understand what, not what prompted it, but um, perhaps why this is such an important moment, you need to jump back a little bit further because the, the relationship of the army and the civilian in Ireland is rocky, I think would be a nice way of putting it. And in the over the course of the 1760s, things hadn't really been going particularly well. And there might have been an element of, well, if we can increase the size of the army, we might actually improve repression as well. But with the... Uh, 
loss of so many regiments to America, and you're talking almost, I think, 50% of the garrison, you have a garrison that's very much spread quite thin, who has quite a bad reputation anyway. And whether it's perhaps guilt from not being able to take part, or uh, perhaps there's a survivor thing going on, who knows. The army is misbehaving whilst it is in Ireland. And there's also this rising threat of a French invasion. And as a result of this, you have the foundation of the Irish Volunteers. And these are initially set up by very wealthy Protestant nobles. Uh, nobles is such a medieval term for it. <laughs> Business, what have you, magnates. And uh, that's almost more medieval. I'm killing this here. Uh, but anyway, so the wealthy Protestants set up these groups, and they're formed around like gentlemen's clubs and that kind of thing. And um, they're set up uh, to at first to show loyalty and also ostensibly to protect against French invasion. But what happens is you have these volunteer movements. Um, they te seem to supplant the army in a lot of the civil policing roles. So you have the volunteers chasing after criminals. You have the volunteers putting down riots peacefully, not opening fire, this kind of thing. And this coincides, again, with a massive protest movement in Dublin specifically, but it's dotted around the country as well, known as hawking. Now, hawking is essentially an attack by the butchers in the city against the soldiers where they would terrorize them. They would ambush them in the streets at night and deliberately slash the back of their legs on the calves to maim them to the point where they couldn't march again. And this is systematic. So it kicks off at the start of the uh, seven, or American War of Independence, and it fluctuates with army behavior. So if the army's misbehaving, hawking increases. It's like a cyclical sort of phenomenon. And there's a massive spike in it later on in 1784, where the army tries to break some soldiers out of prison, uh, which isn't a good look for any organization. And then there's an incident where they try to deploy the army against a barman who happens to insult some officers and drive them out of his bar. Uh, so all of these incidents coincide with a rise in this sort of essentially uh, organized like terror group against the soldiers, I suppose, if you, if you want to use that term. Maybe it's a bit too political. But... It's a very hostile sort of workplace relationship, and the volunteers are just seen as this alternative. So the British Army is becoming incredibly unpopular, and the fact that it in any way recovers from this coming into the 1790s is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, it's no surprise, really, that it performed so poorly, at, at least at first in 1798, uh, because that period is obviously not great for the British military either. But across the American War of Independence, the army at home is in, I think it's fair to say, kind of a shambles. And it doesn't, it's not surprising that they are performing. It's it, it, mutually symbiotic, I suppose. Bad performance there, bad performance here, crisis of conscience, crisis, crisis of masculinity as well, replacement service being present with the volunteers. It's a bad time all around. Can I just out of interest ask what was the if you know what was the diff the the attitude between the army and the volunteers were they like antagonistic? Yeah, so I mentioned that bar fight. Uh, the barman was a volunteer, so these officers go in and they're drunk <laughs> and they start harassing his wife and he says, "Step away from my wife! Come on, you're supposed to be honourable." And the, they notice he's got a little volunteer symbol uh, on his. Uh, on his chest, so they go, oh, you're a volunteer, are you? And then they tweak his nose, 
ex exact quote. <laughs> so he goes, okay, that's enough. He punches one of them in the face, then goes back behind his bar and takes out his musket. So the officers are driven out into the street. Uh, they come back very apologetically saying, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Psych, grab his musket, throw it into the River Liffey. Um, then some bystanders, having seen this, start to you know, rally against the officers and they start pelting them with stones. So these very drunken officers then sprint back to the barracks and try to turn out the garrison to attack this bar and mob. Oh, yeah. So it's a massive PR crisis for the army because you can't have officers acting like this. It's just embarrassing. And they, they, there's a newspaper called the Hibernian Journal or the Chronicle of Liberty, <laughs> depending on which you want to, uh, name you want to take. And they are constantly undermining the army and triumphing the volunteers. There is some cooperation between them. So particularly in riot suppression, they, they welcome the help. And this is also a period where you've got a lot of agricultural protest, uh, particularly there's a protest movement called the Right Boys, who have these massive, you're talking 2,000 strong uh, groups who just sort of roam the countryside. They're advocating for things like tithes. There's very few deaths, but there's a lot of sort of destruction of property. And the volunteers help suppress those as well as like, the army in cooperation with them. So those sort of civil policing duties are shared and that's something of a relief, but there's a sense of you're replacing us. So there's definitely, it's not a happy relationship. Right, so, yeah. It's just really fascinating. Sorry, I won't labor the point, but the, the similarities between, because I know nothing about Ireland, sorry. That's fine. No the similarities between uh, the British army situation in Ireland and its situation in Boston in sort of 1770, late 1760s, where you've got uh, the regulars and uh, locals basically having like gang fights with each other and all sorts of little flashpoints. Um, there's also the, the Sons of Liberty, so-called, with their um, journal of occurrences where they document everything bad the army does and spread it around and sort of help stir up the rebellion. So... Yeah. Really interesting crossovers there. Yeah, and the there's a, there's a one thing I'm I'm sort of hypothesizing in my own head for one of the sections of my thesis is that the the army is particularly in the 1740s 50s is just another gang. Um, there are two main gangs in Dublin. Uh, one is full of butchers called the Ormond Boys, and the other is full of weavers called the Liberty Boys. And then there's the army, and it's just them playing off one another for most of that de uh, decade. Uh, the army eventually just makes a complete hames of suppressing that. It's a disaster. Uh, what they do is they're told, uh, go in and destroy the weavers' markets because they're clandestine and they're operating illegally. So take those out. But at the same time, they parade the whole military and tell them, do not participate in any riots whatsoever. Don't suppress them. Don't join them. Do nothing. So they destroy these weavers' markets and then just go back home. So there's a colossal riot <laughs> as a result of this, which kind of, again, ruins army-civilian relationships for the next 10 years. I uh, can't imagine that happening at any other point in Irish history that the army kicks off and then does nothing. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's really interesting that you actually say that because I, I've done two YouTube videos where I basically, where, where myself and uh, my co-host pretty much decide that the British Army in Boston in 1775 are pretty much acting just like a gang defending its own turf against the Sons of Liberty and the Boston uh, population. It's, yeah, just, I mean, it's a fairly common thing to happen. It's a tale older than time. It happened. I mean, there's a lot to be said about it. recent conflicts, Iraq, we, we, you know, there was the Sunni Shias and the British, and it was just all three just taking lumps out of each other. 
Um, and I think the army's very bad at that. And it, it, I quite like the tweaking the nose. I was listening very recently to Eamon <laughs> O'Keefe, a uh, PhD candidate, did. And the tweaking nose was a real honour thing. You know, it yeah. was actually like shaming somebody. And then last my comment is, oh, the poor territorial army. No one likes us. I think one of the issues with the gang thing is that there's no doctrine. Um, mm. I mean, this is pre-Gordon riots. I mean, 1784 isn't, but most mm. of this is pre-Gordon riots. So there isn't that really shameful incident where everything goes really wrong and we need to do something. And also in Ireland, there's no mutiny act either. So there's a lot of... And there's no riot act. And there isn't a riot act until... 1770, 80? And the riot act's really important because they would literally read it out loud and tell yeah. people to disperse, wouldn't they? Yeah, and it, it then gives the soldiers a clear conscience to do whatever they need to do I afterwards. I guess like um, whatever the step up of the ASBO was where they used to try to do it to public disorder. Yeah, it's, it's a mass dis- er, dispersal tactic, but that there isn't one of them to read out in Ireland. And because it's the Irish establishment which is being paid for by the Irish government and is a separate entity in itself. It needs this legislation to be passed by the Irish Parliament who are very anti-military and want nothing to do with it. So they, they never are given the administrative support to do their jobs, yet 90% of what they do is the jobs that need that administrative support. So I'm not defending what they do because they put down riots like a sledgehammer. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but at the same time, it's an interesting that they lack that admin to actually do what they need to but do. They don't, have, they don't have the tools to do the job adequately is what you're kind of saying. It's not an excuse yeah. for behaviour, but there's a reason yeah. that they're behaving so badly. And there does seem to be an escalation protocol that they have in place. There's one riot in particular um, where <laughs> I, this one just stands out because uh, it's, it's a woman who's doing most of the agitating. Uh, so there's a, there's a party of soldiers who are trying to put down these uh, guys and uh, they First of all, they point their guns at them, and um, a woman in the background is saying, they have no powder, they have no powder, don't worry about it. Uh, so then they fire blanks, or they fire just powder, and they say, She's got, they've got no ball, it's fine, they've got no ammunition. So then they fire at the shop signs above them, and then she said, they'll never shoot at us, they'll never shoot at us, and then they volley fire into the crowd. Uh, so there it does seem to be, you know, a, a trend of like we will eventually escalate this if you do not disperse. But there's no set system. It's very much the call of whoever's in charge, and that could be the mayor or it could be an officer because the soldiers are assigned to civil authorities. Very similar to the Boston massacre. Although the Boston massacre wasn't a smaller amount of men, they were egged on to eventually. Uh, in fact, no order was given. That was ill-discipline, like uh, Robbie was saying in, in the garrisons in, in America, that someone just eventually lost his temper and fired, and the rest of them all fired because they thought the officer had given the order. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, that's why discipline is so important, is what we're coming back to. And they, if they're not being trained to independently think, then it has repercussions, and if they don't have the you know, the tools to do the job and the legal framework is going to um, cause a huge problem. Where do we end up at the, the end of the century? By the 1780s and 1790s, are we in a better state than at the beginning? Flanders would imply not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> a lot of like, I know this is obviously a podcast that has three guys going, mm, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I think... Um, 
the commission system it just kind of has rendered everything broken. <laughs> I mean, you've got an officer corps who just don't know what they're doing, and you've got automatons for soldiers who have no independence action at all, really, or know how to go about what they're doing. Mm. And, I mean, it, there's no surprise that the Grand Old Duke of York marches his men up and down the hill. <laughs> I, I, mean, the grand, I mean, the Duke of York can be credited with uh, influencing a great many reforms that allow the army to move into conflict better against Napoleon. Um, with the, with that, that's the influ- he's influenced by officers who've served in America and officers who have studied in Germany and things like that. Uh, which is where you get uh, Dundas and the, the the drill book and things like that, and the flight infantry school and things, and that's a collision of the German and American schools, if you will, because there was a there was a tension at the end of the century between those who had fought in America, who believed in the in quotes American scramble um, version of way, the way to do things, and that included line infantry, because by the end of the American War. It, Line infantry uh, battalions were able to extend into open order and and do stuff, but you know, um, I, I agree. I personally agree. Uh, it was not in good shape to face a, a dynamic offensive army like the one that it faced in Flanders, uh, fielded by the Republic of France. I really want one day there to be some sort of like revisionist movement that say that actually this was great, but at the moment I think we can safely say, yeah, the 1790s British Army was not at top notch. I mean, I don't know if there's, it's not my period, but I kind of feel instinctively like there's parallels between the Boer War and the First World War, between 1790s and the Peninsula War, maybe a little bit, maybe I'm just picking that up, I don't know. I mean, as with all things, it depends a great deal on the general. The British Army does have the advantage of it. it. It will perform well if you have a general who knows how to make it perform well, and it could be tailored in on campaign to do stuff, but it couldn't be brought into the campaign by a, a dunderhead and be expected to, to outperform the enemy. And sadly, we see quite a lot of those kind of characters at this time, don't we? Like Cumberland. Yeah. <laughs> um, he only won one battle... That battle is not allowed as a battle on it. <laughs> <laughs> is there any redeeming features, any branches that we see changing? We, what we have not talked about is the, the Royal Regiment, artillery um, themselves, God's Own Gunners, um, you know, um, obviously very close to my heart. Um, do they seem any kind of reform between um, Blenheim and uh, the kind of after the American Revolution, do they improve? Josh is nodding. Josh, what, what happens with the gunners? Well, I also see Robbie trying to form words um, here. So. just going to fire in a crappy joke. I was going to say that we can technically not talk about them because they're not part of the army in this period. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, we yeah. can get all the way into 18th century semantics and talk about the Board of Ordnance. Yeah, they are technically part of the Board of Ordnance, not part yeah. of the... Yeah. And there is also the Royal Irish Artillery, which oh. is separate Indeed. as well. Yeah. Uh, it's its own little um, thing. It's no thing. <laughs> they are, there are companies of Irish Artillery, yes. Yeah. Actually, well, yeah, so bearing in mind that it's not technically part of the army and that's a big pain in the neck and one of the reasons why the British army is, is in, in kind of a state <laughs> when Wellington gets to command in Spain but um, why don't we just say that actually if we circle way back to Marlborough one of the reforms he did make when he, be, I think he was Master General of the Ordnance at one point or he, Commander-in-Chief, he did actually 
try to reform the artillery, uh, which at that, when he was uh, serving in, 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 in the, on the continent, was uh, a rather bulky and clunky thing, and he formed it into two, two artillery companies. And from there, it so, sort of slowly grinds on doing its thing, as it always has, supporting the, the army, providing the artillery, you know, providing the big guns, um, you, uh, but, and it supplies the standout field piece for the British Army, which is the Brass Nine Pounder, which he serviced from about 1719 all the way into the Peninsula War. And it's actually brought back into service in the Peninsula War um, because it falls out of favour at a certain point. But uh, if you're going to actually look at a, a, a part of the, in quotes, army, armed forces, um, that does see a certain amount of improvement. The artillery does make consistent efforts to improve its guns. Uh, it's a meritocracy largely, so you have to be, um, you have to know what you're doing to to become a officer. You have to pass the, the school. Um, They've been to Woolwich, I believe. Yeah, have done some training. Yeah, you can't buy a commission to be in the Royal Artillery. You have you, patronage is still a thing, mm. absolutely, but um, you do have to actually pass. Exactly. That, I mean, that's never going to <laughs> Britain was built on nepotism, um, <laughs> uh, basically. Uh, but yeah, there is a degree of training there, and obviously, I'm just, I'm declaring my my interest, my bias of being a gunner. Um, but it is interesting to hear that they do slowly make some improvements. Do they do they have doctrine books a bit earlier than the infantry then, because it's the technical branch? Uh, they they do. I mean, it's not fair to say completely that the infantry had no doctrine books. It's just they had a lot of them. Lots of different. Um, <laughs> and usually they 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 appeared during wars, or when wars were going to happen. Um, with the artillery, you get people like uh, what's his name. Well, yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm thinking of, I think it was, uh, I have it written down actually somewhere, uh, yeah, um, uh, John Mueller, who was the master gunner of Woolwich uh, and author of the Treaties of Artillery in 1768, and, uh, and, and before him, General John Armstrong, uh, who was uh, who kind of surveyed the artillery in the 1730s and found that there was a ridiculous amount of calibers of guns being used and that they needed to be simplified. Okay, yes, yeah, sensible reform. If you have less variation, then you've got easier logistics and, you know, simple terms, the cannonball you want fits down the gun you want. Um, yeah. <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, I think we're, just before we wrap up, if we can go around the room, I'm going to do two circles. What do you think was the most influential event, either, you know, innovation or battle, and then the most uh, innovative and, like, Im biggest impression left by an individual, which, you know, let's not beat you around the bush, is likely to be uh, a white European man, um, but that's the era we're talking about. So if we do events first, we go around... Uh, Josh, do you have an event in mind that's probably the biggest influence? Oh, good grief. Um, <laughs> uh, event. Weirdly enough, I would probably have to say it would be the wars in America. Um, as, of, as an event, generally speaking. As an event, the um, wars in America influenced because of yeah. the light infantry kind of stuff? 
Yeah, as it as it influenced the way that the British Army were fighting at the end of the century, as opposed to how it was fighting at the beginning of the century, there is a definite difference in terms of its operational, uh, the way it did things operationally. Um, so I would have to, I don't, I don't know which war. I'd be tempted to say actually the one that they lost, but um, they can, in a way, be seen almost as one kind of continuous series of action technically but um, yeah I would have to say the wars I'm going to say the wars in America were the biggest event for the army Okay, uh, Robbie that's often your area do you agree would you have a specific uh, moment in time that you, in mind um, I would definitely agree I feel like the kid in the tutorial who had an answer ready and then the person in front of them said just <laughs> <laughs> <Josh> does that <laughs> what am I going to say um, so I'm going to twist it slightly and just focus in within the conflict in America. Um, I think it's tempting to look at battles when the army actually started getting going and started being more effective. But I think the opening engagements at Lexington and Concord and then at Bunker Hill outside Boston really like shook the army because uh, they were basically disasters. I mean, um, Lexington and Concord, you were very close to having militia wipe out an entire column of regular soldiers in the opening engagement of the war. Bunker Hill, uh, huge casualties, uh, massive officer corps casualties. So one-eighth of all British officers killed in the revolution were killed at Bunker Hill, just that one battle. Uh, they adapt things like their uniforms and stuff later on so they don't stand out as much. Um, so in reality, there, there's a myth. We spoke about it when I was on Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, Americans sniped British officers and they were so good at it. Uh, in reality, I don't think there's actually higher casualties in the revolution than in any other periods, um, uh, conflict in this period among the officers. But there is a bunker hill where they don't really know what they're doing. Um, and it's just such a shambles. Uh, and you see the army learn from it. And they take it on board. And the next time the army takes to the field at Long Island, it's a complete success. They nearly destroy the Continental Army just overnight, basically. Um, they actually learn something. Hooray! Yeah, I mean, they forget it. As yeah. But for, you see a very definite and clear improvement throughout the Revolutionary War um, after that absolute shock uh, right at the start of it. Brilliant. 100% agree. That's really interesting. Uh, Dorman. I'm going to be that kid in the tutorial, I guess. Well, actually, I have two answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I special. From my own <laughs> from my own little sphere of um, in Ireland, um, I think the most important event is in 1739, where you have the first large-scale reduction of the garrison. Uh, you have ten regiments taken out and placed in in the UK and subsequently onto the West Indies. Uh, that is the first time the garrison is dropped below 12,000 men, and it coincides with a massive rise in rioting and the beginnings of the decline of the army societal relationship which I've gone into detail about 20 minutes ago. Uh, so it, that is that moment where everything starts to go wrong. And is, just quickly, that is a huge garrison anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it's massive. But ha they take out 10, 10 regiments of that. And when they do that, and because they do that, I think everything that happens afterwards is as a result of that. And because it's a rotational system, every regiment in the British Army will eventually spend some time in Ireland, apart from the guards. So 
you are, you do end up with every regiment being affected by that decision, having to spend time in Ireland, probably shooting at Irish civilians at some point. So from my own little bias sphere, I'm going to go for that. Um, however, <laughs> my other answer <laughs> uh, is, I think, the most important imp impact on sort of the way battles are fought in this entire period is probably seen with Frederick the Great and his invasion of Silesia and the first battle he fights there and the name of which has gone completely out of my head and I really wish someone, probably Josh, is going to jump in here with the name of the battle where Frederick's cavalry run away and then his infantry carry the day through Prussian infantry tactics and that inspired basically all of Europe. <laughs> Could be uh, Rossback and... Um, no, uh, no, earlier. <laughs> What's the other one? Hang on. He runs Lee away Lee. as well. It's the Lee battle... Lee? Uh, maybe. He has one of the ones where he leaves because he thinks he's lost, and then someone's yes. like... Yes. <laughs> he goes back. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, the, it's the first battle. Yeah, I know. Um, no, it's oh. not coming to me. That's like Myrmigan or something like that. Yeah, it's an M. I feel it's an M. <laughs> yeah. Mulvitz. Yeah, the Battle of Malvitz. That's. Uh, it. Um, I, th I think per that is probably. Persian Axe is going to be so disappointed in me. Tonight, this is it. But yeah, I think I think Malvitz, in terms of changing the way people think, and the emphasis on discipline, and the shock that does to the European sort of strategy generally, I think that's pretty important. Cool. Okay. Different answers. I mean, again, not one that. We knew Marvich, so that's um, an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, and then going around, I'd really like to hear, because we didn't touch on many individuals apart from Marlborough um, and, and Robert Rogers. Who were the most influential people of that century, of that era, that left an impression or at least did something, even if it was short term, and then like teaching my mum to use control, copy, paste, as she forgets it two days later. Um, who was it that kind of put a stamp and their mark on the British Army in the 1700s? Uh, Josh? There, there are a number of them. Um, and so it's, it's rather difficult just to choose one. Um, for my money, it, the, the character of the Duke of Armour doesn't really leave the army. Um, for a, a good deal of time. Um, and his example of, yeah, so his, his example of, of sort of operational mastery and his ability to work with, with the continental allies, uh, controlling very large forces, uh, and being the incredibly important figure he was for being a, for being a British general in charge of a coalition army, um, can't be too understated. It also can't be too much understated that the reputation of the British Army then, you know, used, uh, went into battle with during the 1740s and obviously tripped up and fell on their faces because obviously Marlborough was dead, um, is, is largely derived from the Duke of Marlborough's uh, expertise at logistics, at caring for his soldiers, at making sure they were at peak performance. And it was at this time that European forces would realize, would, 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 would take notice of wherever the British standards flew in an Allied battle line. Because obviously, as the French found out at Minden, uh, British troops were capable of some ridiculous things on the battlefield. Um, and I think that is owed, uh, certainly in Europe, because it's 
difficult to differentiate between Europe and America. Um, and India, in fact, actually, which is another, another place that the British were fighting in the 1760s and 70s uh, and 80s. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to say Marlborough. Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought you might. <laughs> he's justified to be in there as one of the greatest military commanders ever, um, let oh. alone British. I mean, he, he's up there with Wellington, and I think they both kind of trounce all over Napoleon. Um, but he's, he's well up there, and I'm just putting my bias in every podcast. Um, yeah, okay, Robbie, I feel that you might have a really different answer, though. I was going to ask, first of all, can I get you to fight versus your classic Wellington versus Marlborough? Thing now. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, for hours. <laughs> That's episode two, Robbie. That's episode two. <laughs> Richard Holmes on the go here. Um, oh, the great Richard Holmes. Yeah, yeah. We could just go in a room and fight on that. Um, yeah. Uh, so I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna do the double answer as well, just because like why not? Um, Am I the only one who plays by the rules? I'm serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to cover as much ground as I can because I, I wanted to just say um, how William Howe, uh, who was. I would also, I mean, yeah, go, go with Howe, man. I kind of feel like I have to mention Wolf. If no one else is going to mention Wolf, I feel like I've got to mention Wolf. Um, yeah. I kind of don't want to mention Wolf too much because, like, I know a bit about Wolf, but not too much. I kind of, I just feel bad because the previous answer, thinking back, I'm like, I should have maybe said the Seven Years' War because it is such a break between. I mean, I know it literally comes in the middle of the century, but it feels like such a break for the British Army between the first half of the 18th century and the second half, and how in the revolution they are kind of building off things they've learned in the Seven Years' War, which in a way makes it more important. I guess you covered that by saying the American War is clever. <laughs> it wasn't just a revolution you were talking about, but just I should emphasize that Seven Years' War was really important. And Wolfe was kind of cool. Anyway, um, William Howe, I think, in the revolution was was the most pivotal. Um, he's a pretty fascinating guy. He's a brilliant tactician, terrible strategist. So on the battlefields, uh, he gets it right. Um, he makes it look easy in many ways. He wins, I think, all his battles, more or less. Um, he's inches away from catching George Washington uh, around New York. Uh, he wins at um, ugh, Brandywine, um, gets the prize that Germantown still wins. Um, he's, he's a good tactician. When it comes to strategy, not so great. He messes up the 1777 campaign by deciding to uh, capture Philadelphia instead of supporting Burgoyne, which then results in the first Patriot victory, which leads the French to join in the uh, Patriot side. Um, he's, his actual character is interesting because he's pro-American. Uh, he was uh, very against the war. Uh, one of the reasons he was put in charge was because the British ministry was trying to go for this conciliatory note where they were like, we don't want someone who's just going to go crazy when he gets to America and start, you know, really being very um, offensive-minded when it comes to uh, trying to put down the revolution. Um, there's accusations that that then caused him to hold back a bit when it comes to um, delivering the killer blow. Like, he can neither win... He, c he can't do both things. Uh, he's, he's trying to suppress the rebellion while being nice about it. Um... But in terms of the purely tactical doctrinal sense, he's one of the big proponents of the whole, uh, what Josh said, the, the American scramble. So um, there's really interesting periods after the British evacuate Boston, um, and the task before them at that point is mammoth. They've basically lost the entire 13 colonies. Um, you know, you think they're suppressing a rebellion at this point. In reality, they're trying to reconquer North America, um, certainly anything north of Florida and south of uh, Quebec. Um, so he takes the army to Halifax, and he drills the army, 
and he adopted lots of these um, doctrinal changes, everything from uniforms to, um, you know, how units move, the open order tactics. And when they're next engaged uh, at Long Island, it's a resounding success. So he does loads of really good things, and he kind of then falls down um, when it comes to the, the vital strategic choices. Um, so he's an interesting guy. I think Hal's, Hal's kind of winning it there. Um, I mean, I, I love Wolf. Uh, his house, is Quebec house, as it's now called, is just down the road from me, and it's one of my favourite little places to visit. Uh, it's really fascinating. So I think uh, we'll find, probably find an excuse to circle back to him at some point. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I was honestly slightly surprised that you didn't choose uh, your man Tarleton, which you normally champion on Twitter. Oh. I thought about it, but I just yeah. can't. Well, we first off, no, no cavalry, no cavalry. I know. Why, no why, cavalry. We haven't called about. We haven't talked about the cavalry, and if. And <laughs> oh no. No cavalry here. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I love my boy Tarl, but. Uh, ban. Yeah, bloody ban. Um, he. Uh, you're going to get me into some sort of long-winded answer here. He's interesting in so much as he's a microcosm of uh, the British Army officer class, really don't like the rebels, and kind of want to destroy them. At the same time, he's not the complete psycho he's portrayed as, and but he's amazing for rebel propaganda. Um, he's very, I want to say he's very competent. He's a one-trick pony. He gets his dragoons, he chases the Americans, he catches up with them, he attacks them very violently straight away, and because they're normally militia, they run away and he wins. So that's cool. Um, but that kind of doesn't work for him at Calpens when he's against exactly. You know, he kind of fluffs his lines when it really counts. Well, uh, he's up against a clever guy. Morgan knows what he's doing is the problem. It's not so much the troops. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so I can't really. We're talking about sort of overarching big effect on the British Army in the 18th century. Yes. I can't say he has a big effect on the overarching. Mm. No, well defended. You haven't you haven't done him in the in. The... <laughs> <laughs> um, we should I think it's. Fair to say there that Wolf, in terms of the reforms thing, he simplified the platoon firing system into like vastly simplified it. And also, he was the guy behind the let's let's drop the bayonets down to the waist, boys, and not use it like a pike. Yeah. Carry on. No, yeah, I I I like Wolf. Uh, I really just need to know more about the guy. I think he's great. It's, um, it, it's like Army paintings is his death scene, if nothing yeah. else. It's like Marlborough's army up to the Seven Years' War, and then it almost kind of becomes Wolf's army in a kind of way. Maybe I think we need to come back to a whole separate podcast about what if Wolf survived, would we America <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to ask Dorman his, his one. Who's yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it, it would have been Wolf's army if he didn't decide to ride a horse at that day. Um, <laughs> I think... Uh, it's 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 a tough question to ask or to answer. I think Lord Trimulston again. I'm being very Irish focused here, but Lord Trimulston, uh, he's one of the, he's the first person to advocate for Irish Catholic recruitment. His proposal this is in 1762. He asks Irish Parliament and by extension Westminster um, for permission to set up a Irish legion to go to Portugal. It will fight in the Portuguese army, but it will be equipped by the British, have British guns, have British training. It will, re- it will receive training on the boats on the way, because we're not <laughs> training Catholics. <laughs> we're just not. Uh, so I think, again, in my own little microcosm, I think that's a really important moment, because it, it, it opens the door for what comes later with Irish Catholic recruitment. However, I think the most important event in uh, event and man in British military history in this whole century was the officer who spoke French, 
during Wolf's attack on Quebec, who managed to blag the guard at the river so they could climb the cliff. Because if he hadn't spoken French, they would was never that, have climbed the cliff and never would have taken Quebec. Is that not what um, William Howe was to say? That's, that's how, isn't it? William Howe I think it could have been, yeah. <laughs> oh, good Billy, Billy Howe has won. It's <laughs> really cool for like a junior officer to win. And it's two votes for Howe. Give that guy later on. Oh. Yeah, there we go. How wins, gents? Thank you very much. That was a really interesting insight into uh, a development, and then it wasn't a development, and then a whole century of warfare that kind of peaks and troughs all over the place. With great, you know, British victories, losses, embarrassing moments, and just gut-wrenchingly uh, embarrassing atrocities kind of thrown in there uh, as well. So I really, I really thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That was great fun. What, what, what we came for, although no cavalry. I'm just moaning continually about this fact. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say whatever. <laughs> We're going to need a separate entire cavalry podcast. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to because I don't know anything about cavalry. Come and talk about Van Estre He's a cavalry commander at heart. <laughs> I think we can definitely um, do a few more of these. I really enjoyed uh, picking your brains and your expertise because it's uh, your your era and your uh, your lane. So thank you very much. Happy to play part. <laughs> thank uh, and thank you everyone for joining us on History Hack. Uh, we've got loads more great episodes coming up in the near future, some really big names, along with our regulars such as Down the Pub and Head Shopping with Matt Bone. Uh, you can support us for as little as $3 a month to try to uh, give us some, some basic substance, basically some equipment, some editing software uh, on Patreon, and uh, every help in this kind of post-pandemic world uh, for the History Hack team is greatly appreciated. Uh, with that, uh, you can join us then on a closed Facebook group and get some uh, exclusive content before it comes out so please do look us up on the link for Patreon as well. Thank you and uh, until next time we'll see you on History Hack. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well which is Podbean's own version uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.